Mute. There we go. You probably all heard me, but this is uh, Sunday, September the 26th. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. Our scripture today comes from Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 12, 13 through 17. If you wanted to follow along in your bulletins, it's on page, I'm sorry, bulletin, Bible pews. I cannot speak today. This sermon's going to be interesting. Uh, page 718. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You are not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. Is it right then to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to tap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought a coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Blessed is the word of God. If you're not aware, there's actually a name for the list of books that we have in our Bible. It's called the Canon. And ours has 66. If you went to an Orthodox or Roman Catholic or any number of other branches of the church, you might find that they have different lists. But you might not know is that the whole reason we have a canon is because of a heretic named, uh, <laughs> named Marcion of Sinope. Now, Marcion was an early church father, but he really struggled with squaring the Jewish roots of Christianity with the Christ that he understood. After all, he read Christ and learned about Christ and knew that Christ described a God of unimaginable love. But then he would read the Hebrew scriptures and encounter a God that was often quite bloodthirsty. And so he decided that he was going to create a, a list of spiritually authoritative scriptures that he wanted Christians to follow. So he picked out 10 of Paul's letters. They're the letters that were to churches rather than people. And a shorter version of what we now know as the Gospel of Luke. He bypassed the problem of what do you do with the Bible? I mean, what do you do with God in the Hebrew Scriptures by simply saying, we don't have Hebrew Scriptures. Other church fathers didn't like it, and in the year 144, he became one of the church's first heretics and was excommunicated. But his legacy did not stop in 144. It continued to grow 
it continued to be a part of Christianity. And eventually, his tradition came to be embodied by a new branch of Christianity known as the Cathars. Now, the Cathars inhabit what's modern-day northern Italy through southern France. And if you go to the Languedoc region, which is southeastern region um, of, of modern France, you can still find that their culture is alive in the people who live there, even a little bit of their faith. But the Cathar religion itself was more or less wiped out during a crusade against them in the 1300s. Now, if uh, you were to go do some studying about the Cathars, you'd probably find some things you liked. For instance, in an age when only men could be leaders in the church, the Cathars argued that men and women were equal in Jesus, and therefore women had the same rights as men, both in the church, so they could be priests, they could be leaders, and even in society. You'd probably find some things that you would think was weird. For instance, the Cathars were vegans. By faith, they were all vegans. They saw that any kind of thing that we would take into us that came from animals or animal reproduction was inherently wrong because it tied us to this world. Although they did allow the eating of fish because like most medieval Europeans of the time, they believed that fish were spontaneously generated by the ocean. That is, there's no fish spawning or anything. You just have a lot of seawater and fish appear. Don't hold it against them. All Europeans pretty much thought it at the time. But it was that heritage that they received from Marcion that you would probably still find being the most problematic. You see, the Cathars believed that there is an evil God. They were dualist. That is, they believed that all things have an equal and opposite force. If we have a good, perfect, loving God, there must also be an evil, hating God that is opposite. Now this evil God they believed was the creator of this world. This was the same God who called out Abraham, the same God that led the Israelites into the promised land and was worshipped at the temple. They believed in this God and they called him Rex Mundi, king of the world. But there is the good God, the God that all Christians worship, the true God, the God of the heavens. And this God could do one thing that Rex Mundi couldn't, and that is create souls. So Rex Mundi created all of this in order to confuse souls. So that when we died, our souls would be stuck here with him. Because he couldn't create them, he wanted them. And Jesus was sent by the true God to teach humans how to cut through the illusion. So that when we die we can return to the true God of the heavens. Dualism is an ancient religion. 
It has long existed in Christianity, but to be fair, dualism has always existed in religions. Christianity is the weird one in that it wasn't essentially built into it. Same with Judaism. We have one God, one good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who has done everything. Most faiths have gods that fight each other. Whether it's the Greeks who have their gods who are like us, only more so. You know, Zeus is essentially a human. He's just all of our wants, needs, and desires taken to the extreme. Or you have gods like the Egyptians who they essentially viewed the world as chaos and order. And those two forces are always battling. Chaos, order, darkness, light, evil, good. Dualism is basic. Christianity was odd. So it's not a surprise that it found its way into Christianity. And even though the Cathars were wiped out in the 1300s, Marcion and their beliefs in this dualistic world continue to influence us today. How often do you encounter Christians who really see Satan being basically as powerful as God? Frankly, it's missing something fundamental. I mean, just think about sin. If I were to ask you, what is the first sin in the Bible, most of you would answer, hmm? The garden. Yes, Adam and Eve. But that is not actually the first time the word sin is mentioned in the Bible. That is weird. If you read through there, I mean, yes, you could argue it is sin when Eve takes the bite of, we say, an apple, a bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Arguably, because anything that separates us from God, anything that disobeys God is, in fact, what we call sin. But the writer doesn't call it that. Calls it a disobedience, but not, not a sin. Now, I do have a theory on this. It's not only my theory, I've heard it more than once. But consider the fact that Adam and Eve are born full in human, like full adults in the garden. You know, I have a four-year-old and I've, I, I've received a text, I saw a little notification on my computer up here that she's standing outside yelling and that's why they aren't in here yet. <laughs> but you know what? It's really hard to say that a four-year-old or a three-year-old or even maybe in a five, somewhere around in there, you get the change. It's hard to say that they sin. They may disobey. They may do things that are wrong. But at that age, it's really hard to say they are sinning because they are doing more so out of ignorance. They don't yet have the capacity to know what is good and what is evil. However, as adults, we know that difference. Adam and Eve did not have the capacity to know what was right and what was wrong. And I think for that reason, the Bible doesn't call it sinful there, just disobedient. Instead, sin appears in the next chapter. 
when a man fears that he is loved less than his brother and he wants to be recognized. God warns him that that is sin knocking at his door. The first time sin happens in the Bible isn't when the serpent whispers in the woman's ear, but it's when a brother kills to satiate his own desires. There is a Rex Mundi, a king of the earth, and it is us. It is our wants, our worries that draw us away from God. The Bible continues to document this over and over again, this struggle within the human heart between our baser desires and the call of God. God calls out again and again, come, come be in relationship with me, be in covenant with me. And we answer, and for a time, we live in harmony, loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbors. But like Cain, we fail, we fall away, and we sin because we see things that we want or we fear losing what we have. Sometimes we fail in big, obvious ways that all of us recognize, like King Ahab, who goes out and kills God's prophets and worships Baal and Asherah. That's a pretty obvious failing. Other times, we bow to fear and greed and allow those things that we bow to to pervert the faith. And then we call those perversions God's rules and then claim that they should be followed. Such is what happened at the temple. In the law, God sets out very specific rules for how we humans are to approach God at the temple. One of those is a yearly tax that supports the temple's work. It was on a sliding scale. So if you were poor, you would not be left destitute by giving. And if you are rich, you gave more to God what was owed. But it also had to be paid in a very certain way. The book of, uh, I think it's the book of Deuteronomy, even lists the exact kind of coin because they had to avoid anything that smacked of idolatry. No faces, nothing that shows images that might confuse people as to who God is such as the face of an emperor who calls themselves God. So that entire industry formed around the temple. Money changers to make sure that you had the right kind of coin, no matter where you came from. Animal sellers who made sure that you had good, unblemished, uninjured animals. Grain sellers who made sure you had the choice grain, which frankly it makes logical sense. I mean, if you are a Jew living out in Persia, it's kind of hard to transport your lamb all the way. But it became perverse. Over time, business corrupted the priest, and the priest corrupted the businesses. 
They were receiving kickbacks and turning blind eyes to wealthy individuals who allowed themselves to think themselves over the law while squeezing the destitute into, well, greater levels of destitution. They were afraid. They were afraid of the Romans around them. They were afraid as Jerusalem fell into greater levels of obscurity. And they wanted to maintain their power and their prestige. And they allowed this corruption not only to be sanctioned by the priest, but to wear the cloak of godliness. And then came this nuisance from Nazareth. I don't think that actually alliterates in Hebrew or Aramaic, but it's fun to say. That nuisance from Nazareth comes in tossing over tables, releasing animals, and whipping the merchants. They had to get rid of him. So they sent some of their best and brightest to confront him in the temple. They knew that they could trick him into making a bad call. Frankly, they didn't think Jesus had any other choice. If Jesus said, I support the paying of taxes, all the zealots that followed him would leave immediately. And frankly, he would probably lose his support among a lot of the Jews because they didn't like the Romans. To be fair, most people didn't like the Romans, but that's beyond the point. But if they got Jesus to say we should not pay taxes, then they could call the Romans on Jesus because the Romans were very, very much wanted their money. But Jesus turns the situation on its ear, as Jesus tends to do. He calls for them to bring out a tax coin. Just as there was very certain money that you used to only pay your temple tax, there was a very certain kind of money that you paid your regular taxes, your Roman taxes. Because they wanted to make sure, of course, that they got the exact kind of money they wanted, that you weren't giving them some coin with less silver in it. And so while sitting in the temple, one of the lawyers reaches into his pocket and pulls out a denarii, a small silver coin with the emperor's face imprinted on it. And at that moment, what Jesus showed was that the temple had fallen to such a level of disgrace that these elite, these temple lawyers, these temple Pharisees, these people connected with the ancient line of kings, they were carrying around tiny bits of idolatry in their pockets in God's house. The corruption had been made legal and normal and okay. And at that moment, Jesus whipped the, rug, whipped the sheet back off of it and showed it for what it really was. Now, I will say, this is one of those stories we can draw a lot of conclusions out of. So this is not the only thing that this is important. There's a lot going on in there. But it does remind us that so easily we humans become corrupted by our fears and worries and wants and desires. Even the brethren 
You know, back when the Brethren started, it was almost egalitarian. I mean, it did follow a lot of the social norms of, you know, German peasantry of the day. There were, you know, men typically led congregations, and, but women were partners in that. Even in the first Bible studies, women were full partners with their husbands in the groups. But somewhere along the line, between Alexander Mack's generation and when Julia Gilbert was born, there had been a change. And it was all about bonnets. Now, I know some of you here have prayer bonnets still somewhere at home. Do I, do I have a few prayer bonnets at home? Maybe even, I know, yeah, see, I know even one person told me they usually keep a, one in their purse with them. Well, there became a concern, so-called concern, that women, while in love feast, were not practicing it correctly. That they were fucking at tradition and not wearing their prayer bonnets. The men feared they were losing control. And so they decided that an elder had to go and handle the women's love feast for them. The women were not allowed to break the bread. They were not allowed to pass the cup. Instead, an elder had to go handle it for them to supervise them, which I get with some people like Clara Jean. But <laughs> I kid because I love. <laughs> but for the most part, it was really a system of fear. They were worried that these women were being disobedient. Because you know what? If you went over to the men's side of the love feast, they handled their own bread. They handled their own cups. They were allowed to worship as they wished. That struck Julia really the wrong way. And at the age of 13, she, when she was baptized and she experienced her first love feast, she couldn't, couldn't believe it that this old guy came over and wouldn't let them touch the bread. She didn't understand why they had to be supervised. So she started studying. She read A. Mac's writings and Sanders' writings at A. Mac Jr. She read the Bible. And she came to the conclusion that this was never anything that was set out by faith but rather it was something that people were so worried about they had set on top of it. It may not have been at the same level as the corruption that was happening in the temple at the time, but already we are seeing that people are so fearful in the faith that they are willing to break rules to keep control. And so Julia spoke up. She reached out and wrote letters to people. She wrote letters to what we now call the messenger. She went to annual conference and brought the query to them. And when they came up for debate in 1910, Julia became the first person or the first woman to ever stand up at the annual meeting and address the group. She said, 
And I know I usually put these quotes at the end, but I'll put them at the beginning. We sisters have made the same covenant with God in Jesus Christ that the brethren have made, reminding them that they were all one in Christ, that they were all equal in approaching the table, that they did not need anyone coming in there to supervise them because they were like Adam and Eve and didn't know any better on how to do things. It was the beginning of another change. Now, it would be years and years before women started acting as ministers in our church. She finally came. It would be years before they could be lay leaders in the church. But it was the beginning of a change. It was also a pushback and a recognition that we have at times failed and allowed our own fears to intercept and change our beliefs. That's something we continue to worry about today. When do we engage in a practice? When do we have a belief that is actually based in the scriptures? that's actually based in the faith. And how often do we do it? Because we are afraid of change. Because we are afraid of allowing others to do as they wish or having others do as they might. We are Rex Mundi. We are the king's and queens of this world. We decide whether we sin or whether we follow God. So consider, consider whether you are allowing your emotions to rule over your call. Whether you can be brave like Julia and recognize when things are wrong and speak up or not. Think about it. I don't know about you, but that song since my youngest childhood days has always made me think of the circus. I don't know what it is, it's something about the tune. The circus is like life. It's always meant to either astound you by seeing something you can't believe that you've seen or by terms of flimflammery, trick you into thinking you've seen something that you've never seen before. It's easy to be caught in the illusion of life the illusion of worries, the illusion of what we want and need, the illusion of loss of power and authority. Don't let your eyes be deceived by this circus. Let it instead focus on Jesus and what we are actually called to live. Amen.